Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Impact of influence. The Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family. The mysterious deaths they are linked to and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're going to spend time with us. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here, too. It's Impactive Influence on Facebook. Got a great interview coming up in just a moment. We'd love for you to reach out, as I said, on Impactive Influence. We're a part of the Evergreen podcast team right now. And we've got a YouTube channel that we're starting. This one won't be up on the YouTube channel, but just want to... I guess warn you that you'll be able to see upcoming episodes on our YouTube channel, Impact of Influence. You can go there now if you can find us and check uh, previous episodes out. We started doing Impact of Influence just a couple of weeks after the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. And it was all things Murdoch until we ventured out a little bit and did some other episodes about crimes that happened in the South. One of those was about Pee Wee Gaskins and coming up, Soon, we will re-release the Pee Wee Gaskins episode. Pee Wee Gaskins was probably the most notorious serial killer in South Carolina history. He stabbed, shot, drowned, and poisoned more than a dozen people between 1970 and 1975. He was a career criminal his whole life. And... They found him because they were searching for this missing girl. They started looking for her, and then they discovered eight bodies buried in shallow graves near Pee Wee's home in Prospect, South Carolina. And in 1976, in Florence County, they found the jury found him guilty for the murder of one of the eight victims, sentenced him to death by the electric chair, but that was overturned by the South Carolina Supreme Court. And in February of 78, or thereabouts, rather than face a new trial, Pee Wee pled guilty to nine murders, and he was given 10 concurrent life sentences to be served at Central Correctional Institution, CCI Prison in Columbia, South Carolina. And you're going to hear more about that prison in a few minutes with our interview guest. Well, while at that prison, Gaskins murdered Rudolph Tyner, who was a fellow inmate on death row. You see four explosives. You can hear more about that in the episode. And uh, then he received his second death sentence, which was administered in September of 1991. That's when the finale to Pee Wee Gaskin's life happened. He also wrote a book in that right before he was put to death row called The Autobiography of a Serial Killer, Final Truth. And he claimed in that book that he killed 110 people, but with most people, most, very few exceptions, that's been discredited by law enforcement and journalists and says he was just trying to gain notoriety, pumped up the number, and the book is really graphic and, and really nasty. Uh, it's even hard to find right now, as a matter of fact. But it's going to be great because we get to talk to the attorney who defended Pee Wee Gaskins in that final death row case. Now we are joined by... 
Jack Swirling, who practices law in Columbia, South Carolina. Got his Bachelor of Arts degree from Clemson and his law degree from the University of South Carolina School of Law. He was a member of the Supreme Court of South Carolina's Board of Law Examiners and a member of the Supreme Court's Board of Commissioners on Grievances and Discipline. He is currently a member of the Chief Justice's Commission on the Profession. He has been on the faculty of the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Department of Neuropsychiatry, for more than 20 years, and formerly served in the faculty of the University of South Carolina School of Law for a number of years. He's the author of the South Carolina Criminal Trial Notebook, My Little Rules Book, Criminal, and a contributor to the South Carolina Criminal Trial Techniques Handbook, as well as a number of articles. He's listed in the Bar Register of Preeminent Lawyers, Best Lawyers in America, as well as Super Lawyers in South Carolina. Jack, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I wanted to start off, I just read that you're a graduate of Clemson and that you went to Clemson with the intent of being a veterinarian. Uh, how did you end up becoming a lawyer? Well, I got sidetracked after three semesters of chemistry. And, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, it, it was obviously not going to work because you have to have chemistry every year you're in pet school. So uh, I switched over to political science and economics, and uh, I worked in Manhattan right after Clemson for Liberty Mutual as a uh, court adjuster. I, I worked in Manhattan civil courts uh, and got really fascinated by trial work and uh, decided that, uh, well, let me try this thing. And uh, so I came back down to the University of South Carolina Law School and uh, in 1970, uh, and got my degree in 73. Uh, so you settled into, into being a defense attorney. Was there something in your background or maybe growing up that guided you in that direction? Well, I grew up in a you know pretty tough area, Newark, Newark uh, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, I, uh, it just, I think it just kind of, uh, I always liked, uh, for, I always liked working for the underdog. I was always around, you know, there was an underdog and uh, helping underdogs. And so I guess uh, criminal work became, a, you know, an obvious, uh, you know, thing to go for uh, because now I'm representing a lot of underdogs. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, I think it just gravitated to that. I did a little bit of everything my first few years, but I found that the criminal law was fascinating. Uh, and, you know, representing people who really needed a lawyer. It was really interesting because we started our podcast covering the Murdoch saga, and uh, we did a kind of a throwback episode on Pee Wee Gaskins, and uh, Dick Carpootlian was the one who prosecuted him, and you represented Pee Wee Gaskins at one point. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, Dick and I had gone to Clemson together. Uh, we knew each other from our Clemson days. And then we kind of met again in law school, uh, and he became a prosecutor, and I became a defense lawyer, and, you know, very close friends. And in 1983, uh, Gaskins, I think it was 83, Gaskins got arrested uh, for the murder in uh, the Department of Corrections at what we call CCI. And I uh, I was the one that drew the lucky short straw uh, and got appointed uh, to represent Pee Wee, and uh, Dick was the prosecutor. He was a deputy solicitor at that time. Uh, so we, uh, you know, reunited. Now, we had tried a couple cases against each other before that, but that was really the big case. What was your first meeting 
with Pee Wee Gaskins like? Well, you know, I had an image of Pee Wee from, you know, the newspapers and uh, all the publicity about uh, when he went through those trials in the 70s. And uh, so I, I really didn't know what to expect. And uh, I went down there to maximum security uh, to meet him. Uh, and uh, he was at, he was on a starvation diet at that point. So this little guy who probably didn't weigh, you know, but 115 pounds, uh, 120 pounds. Uh, he was in the cell. He couldn't even move because he was starving himself to death. And uh, so it was, it was quite a shock to me uh, to see him like that. And then also realize that he had been accused of some 12 or 13 murders. Uh, so, it, you know, it was an eye opener for me uh, to see him like that. And, you know, we, we spoke, uh, you know, he was able to go ahead and communicate to some extent, but you know, here I was in this small little cell uh, with this guy who had killed so many people. Uh, and he was just this, you know, guy who just looked, he was probably under 100 pounds at that point. Jeez. I mean, we got along. I pretty much learned everything about Pee Wee Gaskins that you could know in that first meeting because he really just had a very narrow background. Uh, he was in reform school. He was in prison before. I mean, he probably had not been out of prison, but maybe his whole life at that point, maybe 20 years. Uh, and so, you know, it was fascinating for me. I mean, I, uh, like I said, I grew up with, you know, some pretty tough characters and, uh, Pee Wee was of course notorious. Yeah. Uh, and so I just didn't know what to expect, but it was, a, a it was an unusual meeting and we happened to get along. Were you ever concerned for your safety? Uh, not with him because I, I he was the kind of individual who, he appreciated me being there and he appreciated the fact that I was going to be representing him. Uh, the only time I ever had any fear when I was going over to death row uh, and you had to walk through this tunnel. There were very, very few guards around when you walked wow. through the tunnel. The inmates walked around through the tunnel. Uh, and then when I went into cell block two, which is where death row was, uh, you know, they were some of those folks were just out of control. Uh, and, you know, they yelled and they screamed and they banged on the, you know, the bars and wow. through urine at people. Uh, they were just, you know, you, you're talking about the, the, you know, the toughest of the tough or the most dangerous of the dangerous uh, that were in cell block two. Cell block two had been the stables uh, for Sherman during Civil War. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was this old building. Uh, and when you went in there, I mean, uh, you know, everybody was locked down, but they were just really just out of control a lot of them uh, periodically throughout the day so people were screaming and yelling all the time uh and peewee uh later was moved over there but most of the witnesses i had to interview i interviewed i actually interviewed every person on death row what uh, and so that was you know kind of a little scary for me we should uh, point out he's six I'm four six, by the way yeah, because you're you're yeah. you're six four, and you're interviewing this person who's less than a hundred pounds at the time. Well, with Pee Wee, yeah, but uh, and Pee Wee, I never felt in danger with. But when I, when I spent all that time in death row, uh, I really felt like uh, you know there was danger, and you know I was always making sure there were guards around because you never knew what to expect uh, when you went into cell block two. It was a uh, haunting place. Were you interviewing the people on death row for Pee Wee's? defense or was that just through the yeah, yeah yeah no it was for it was for Wee's defense because 
they were all there when the murder took place of Rudolf Tyner. I wanted to know what everybody there saw, heard, and I also wanted to know, you know, Pee Wee, amazingly enough, even though he had been under life sentences and been tried for the death penalty, and his sentences were commuted to life, uh, he had become the building manager of Cell Block 2. Uh, I don't know if you saw that in the story or any of your knowledge of the story, but he was basically in charge, the inmate in charge of Cell Block 2. Uh, and he was the, you know, the mechanic, the electrician. Uh, he had a little sandwich uh, concession. Uh, it was just a quite unusual setup down there that Pee Wee ran the place other than his, obviously there were guards there uh, and, you know, CCI had a, a warden. But as far as the hierarchy of prisoners, Pee Wee's at the top. Which wow. is interesting because he wasn't an educated man and he had spent the majority of his life in prison that he, I guess maybe he was institutionalized. He knew how to play the system. Is that your he thought? He was very cunning, very cunning. Uh, I mean, he knew how to, you know, he knew how to play the game. Uh, and, and and I really mean it when I say cunning. And he was very street smart, street savvy. Uh, and so I think that's how he was able to go ahead and rise to that position. And nobody ever messed with Pee Wee because they knew that if they did, uh, you know, he had a history of violence. Uh, so despite his size, uh, his personality was pretty uh, overbearing. And, uh, you know, people people on death row, even on death row, were afraid of him. Uh, so he, he ran the uh, building with an iron fist and nobody ever messed with him. So when you were talking to the other people on, on death row in that, Section two, were they afraid to speak out against Pee Wee when you were saying, okay, what did you see? What did you hear? Blah, blah, blah. Were they like, I'm not telling you nothing? Or were they talking? Well, we never really got any evidence uh, from anybody in cell block two that <laughs> uh, was against Pee Wee. Uh, wow. but, but I felt like since I was handling a death penalty case, uh, you know, that I had to go ahead and interview everybody that could. I mean, some people just didn't want to talk. Uh, other people, you know, had things to say about Pee Wee, but not in a necessarily negative way. Uh, they just didn't want to, you know, they didn't get involved with him. So I don't think I ever really got any material information from, uh, you know, the people uh, who were on death row. Interestingly enough, uh, the guards in cell block two uh, were very positive about Pee Wee. Uh, you know, huh. he listened to them. He did what they asked him to do. Uh, they never had any trouble from him. So several of them came and testified in his defense uh, oh. for character as character. Uh, and that was, I always felt, felt, found that to be very interesting uh, that they were willing to come up there and talk about the fact that he, you know, was a guy who listened to what they wanted him to do. They, he followed directions and he never gave them any trouble. I know when we spoke before, we talked about handling a death penalty case as a defense attorney. Tell us a little bit about what that is like and how you approach that differently. You know, I mean, I've handled probably several hundred murder cases over my career. Uh, and But there's nothing like a death penalty case because of the, the penalty that's involved. So while I normally I obviously always try and dot every I and cross every T to defend somebody, uh, there's that extra burden uh, and pressure when you're dealing with the death penalty because of you know, the, what the ultimate penalty is. 
in addition to that, it's a bifurcated trial. So you have a guilt or innocence phase, but then you also have the phase where the jury determines the punishment. And so what happens in that phase of the trial, you have to go back and talk to his neighbors. You have to talk to his friends, you know, talk to people that he was in school with, uh, talk to people that he was in prison with, uh, you know, not necessarily the inmates, but, you know, the administration. Uh, and so you're really doing a lot. You're doing a lot more work than a death penalty case because of the punishment phase of the trial, uh, in addition to the guilt or innocence phase of the trial. So. Uh, I mean, I had, uh, you know, if I recall correctly, well over a thousand hours in the case. Wow. Uh, and I got paid $750 by the state. Oh, jeez. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. 75 cents an hour, I think it worked out to, (laughs) something like that. PB was making more in prison than you were. Yeah, you're right. I mean, but that was the statutory amount that I was entitled to in those days in 1983. Uh, by statute, uh, the, the maximum fee for a death penalty case was $1,500. Uh, but I was appointed along with the public defender, uh, and they ruled that even though I was, you know, I was the only one who was going to get paid because the public defender was on the public payroll, uh, all I was entitled to was half of the $1,500. Uh, so uh, I, this is true. I mean, I literally it worked out to about $0.75 cents an hour. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. What did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact50 and use code impact50, 5 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code's impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So how do you sign up for this? Do you, <laughs> when you get appointed, did you agree to this? Now, what happens is you, you get on a death penalty list of people who are qualified by their background and experience. Uh, you know, I think at that time you had to have at least five years of felony experience. Uh, you had to have a certain number of trials. Uh, and I was death pen- what they call death penalty qualified. Good for you. You get to get that 30, 75 cents an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I was, uh, I was looking for that. Uh, <laughs> I hung around the courthouse trying to get appointed. You know, I was kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, I guess at that point I had already tried a number of cases. So I was, 
people were familiar with me. The judges were familiar with me. And so I got the, you know, I won the lottery and I got to represent mm-hmm. Pee-wee. The Pee-wee case, was he accepting the guilt on the the murder of the inmate and it was the fight over the death penalty or what was the, the plea situation? And Well, he actually, uh, during, in fact, I was reading the, some of the final argument last night because uh, I had to do that for something else. And he actually uh, addressed the jury in the penalty phase closing argument. Oh, uh, And he was, you know, he said, well, I may have done some of these things, but I didn't do the others and they don't have the facts right. Uh, he denied killing Tyner, uh, said he didn't do it. He said he was part of the chain of circumstances, uh, which, you know, meant that they had gotten the C4 explosive into prison. He got a hold of the C4 explosive. They made a little bomb. Uh, you know, it, what happened was they put the C4 explosives in a tin can, uh, and there was a, an ignition on the bottom with them. There was a plug connected to the can and when you plug put the plug into the uh ac socket uh it blew up and that's how they killed piner but Pee always denied that he was last in the chain and denied giving the can to uh, tyner however uh you know there was some recorded conversations uh that he made he actually made the recordings uh when he was uh, talking to people on the outside of the prison and they were very incriminating. Uh, and so they really, at that point, uh, the jury didn't find any doubt whatsoever about it. he was actually the person who gave Tyner the tin can and actually plugged it into an AC socket and blew up in Tyner's hand and pretty much taken off half of his head as well. Jeez. When I read the trial, is eight weeks. Does that mean everything together combined, the, the guilt and innocent and the whether it's the death penalty or not? Yeah, what happened was uh, also kind of an interesting background on that. We the jury selection took about four weeks. Wow! And uh, we they brought in somewhere around four hundred people, and because Pee Wee was notorious, sure. Yeah. Uh, and so on the first day, uh, and I, in fact, I, Dick Dick Harpooley and I spoke about it yesterday because we were recalling it to somebody else, uh, but our recollection was that on the first day we seated one juror. And it took another week and a half to get a second juror. Wow. And that's crazy the, that the Murdoch trial yeah. took one day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the questions were like this. Have you ever heard of Pee Wee Gaskins? Yes. Uh, <laughs> would you give him a fair trial? Uh, you know, well, some of them equivocated. I don't know. You know, if you found him guilty, would you send him to the death chamber, to the electric chair? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Jeez. So... You you had, I mean, that's the kind of answers that we were getting. I mean, people either could not be fair about guilt or innocence, and then some, uh, many others, if we got past that stage, said that they would electrocute them. Uh, and so that's why it took so long going through jury selection. And we were doing individual uh, or questioning of each juror. Each one took about a half hour, 45 wow. minutes. Uh, the lawyers were actually doing the voir dire, which is not the usual way to do it. Uh, judges usually conduct voir dire, except in death penalty cases. Uh, but we were getting answers like that. I mean, you know, do you think he ought to be electrocuted? No. Uh, why not? Uh, well, that's too good for him. He ought to be hung. Oh, gee, sweet Jesus. Was there a change of venue discussion or anything? Uh, I think I think early on uh, there was. I, 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 frankly, I don't recall that. It's so many years ago, but right. I'm sure we discussed it in the beginning. And 
we were not going to get a change no. of venue. No. Uh, and I, we may have actually even argued that. I just really don't remember because yeah. it's almost 40 years or more than 40 wow. years ago now. Sure. There was this bizarre kind of kidnapping plot situation that happened with Dick Harpootlian. Can you tell us anything about that? And then I, reading about you, it seems like you were also um, had one of your former clients come and, and break into your home. Yeah, I can thank Harpootly for that too. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you what ha- what happened was uh, Dick uh, Dick had a daughter who was at that time very young, maybe seven or eight years old, maybe not even that. I don't remember. Uh, Kate and uh, you know she uh, what Pee Wee did is he uh, was arranging the kidnapping of Dick's daughter and was going to use her as a hostage to go ahead and have the state vacate the death penalty or commute his death penalty to life and so they uncovered that plot that uh he was going to have her kidnapped and then use her as a hostage hostage negotiations to get him out of the death penalty oh, wow. uh, so that, that's very true and then they and they, for, un, they fortunately uncovered the plot um and it never took place Ugh. uh what happened with me uh Dick and I, after the Pee Wee trial, uh, and you know, we pretty much had coffee together every day after tra- after court. Went over to a restaurant and had coffee, and you know, an appetizer, and you know, and we fought like dogs in the courtroom. Uh, but we were close friends, and uh, so you know, we had a we had a social relationship. And during that period, uh, Dick and I started talking about you know what what are we going to do post trial. And he decided he was going to run. Uh, he wanted to practice law. I was with Isidore Lurie, who was a powerful state senator at that time. And the discussion evolved into maybe we should go into partnership together. So a year or so after the trial, he and I, he left the solicitor's office. I left Isidore Lurie and we formed a partnership together. Uh, several years later, uh, Dick decided to run for solicitor himself, which is our chief prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was representing this fellow named Jimmy Causey. Uh, and he said, look, I'm going to run for a solicitor. I got to stop doing defense work, you know, so I can do the campaigning and all that. And I, he said, would you take over several of my cases? And I said, of course. And Jimmy Causey turned out to be one of those cases that I represented. Jimmy Causey, years later, was the one that came into my house, uh, held my wife and uh, my daughter and I uh, and taped us up, uh, robbed us, uh, threatened to kill us. Uh, and basically, they, they got charged uh, with kidnapping and burglary and armed robbery. Uh, wow. So I could thank Dick for that because I took over his case uh, <laughs> in the late 80s. So I have a lot to say about Harpootlian, uh, but he's, we're still very close friends. <laughs> That's really scary. Did you, I mean, was that a thought being a criminal defense attorney that you you fear for your own and your family's safety at times? Well, I did. Uh, there was a trial after Pee Wee, Larry Jean Bell, uh, who was a killed serial killer, actually. Uh, and he was really mentally ill. And I, his brother and I went to law school together and when he got arrested. Uh, he asked me to represent him, which was a horrific case. And uh, there was a, you know, just an incredible amount of publicity about it. Uh, and so during that trial, uh, I actually had threats to my family. 
and got phone calls. And mm. so SLED, uh, South Carolina law enforcement, uh, sent people to my house. Uh, my kids were escorted to school every day uh, in police cars. Uh, and there was somebody stationed outside of our house during that trial. Jeez. It took a couple of weeks. Uh, and that was probably in 80, 85 or 86, I think. Uh, and it was a very notorious case. And, uh, and that was the one time that I really had a lot of fear, uh, about, uh, you know, somebody that I was representing. Uh, and, and the public just, uh, I mean, many people that I knew understood that I, why I was representing them. And that's my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, plus I knew his brother from law school, we were friends. Uh, so I represented him, but there are people in the public who just don't understand that kind of thing. And yeah. so we did get threats and they threatened my children. You know, how would you like this to happen to your kids? It wasn't the guy you were defending or his buddies. It was just people in the community who thought he shouldn't have a defense. They were threatening yeah, you. It, it wow. Was general people in the That's community, crazy people to me. that I had no idea who they were. Uh, and there were, you know, several threats, but, but the problem was the threats were against my kids. My kids were, you know, at that age, they were maybe 10 or 12 years old. Uh, and you know, in the trial lasted three weeks and I was out of town for the trial. And so we had to have police protection and they, I think they even actually wired my phone, uh, to capture uh, the the phone numbers of anybody who called. So it was, uh, Pretty hairy for a while. No pretty, pretty concerning. Well, the Charlotte Observer titled you Mr. Murder. Uh, what do you make mm. of that title? Well, John, that was John Monk, who's one of the great. Oh, writers. was it Monk? Oh, Monk? Well, I didn't know, I didn't know Monk. it was Monk. Yeah. I'll have to talk oh, to yeah. Him. Well, John, uh, the Pee Wee trial was the first trial that John covered in South Carolina. Oh. Uh, and so we became friendly cause we were in court together, you know, for eight weeks. Uh, and, and I love John, uh, talk to him to this day, actually, uh, we're very, very friendly. Uh, but then he also covered the bell trial and he wanted to write this feature article, uh, for the Charlotte observer and it was a front page Sunday edition, uh, where they call him Mr. Murder or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> my mother was very proud of me. Um, but it was, it was kind of a moniker that stuck. And, uh, so to this day, there are still people that call me Mr. Murder because of the number of murder cases that I've handled over my 50 years. This is my 50th year. Uh, and so I've handled many of those and then I've handled several very high profile murder cases as well. Something about the guy who came from the place where the Sopranos was. Being called Mr. Murder. <laughs> and and 50, yeah. 50 years in, any thoughts of retirement or you're going to keep on going? No, I, you know, I, I'm not tired. Uh, still, I think I still have all my mental faculties. Uh, physically, I feel fine. And, you know, it gives me the juice to get up every morning and go to the office and, you know, work. Uh, you know, I, I still... I think I outwork any young lawyer uh, around. Uh, you know, I don't mind. That's my dad. My dad is fifty night. years in, and he's still he's still mm-hmm. going too, and he has no signs of retiring. Isn't that great? I mean, yeah. it's wonderful. And uh, I still, when I get in the courtroom, I get exhilarated. The adrenaline starts going, and uh, so I have no thoughts of stopping. Good. And I'd love to have you back to talk about forensic psychiatry and to talk about some of the other cases, and because I also, and we said this on this podcast many many times we don't think it's fair how 
like sometimes Griffin and Harpootlian are ripped not because of uh, you know, things that are, you know, I think should be on the board to criticize them about, but just simply because they're defense attorneys. And I, I don't really understand that uh, line of attack. And I, so I, pre- I, mean, I think it's great that you've done what you've done through your life. Yeah, thank you. And I, and, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of what I do. Uh, you know, I mean, I represent some horrific people, uh, but I also represent some really great people uh, who have made a mistake. And, uh, you know, college kids, uh, bankers, lawyers, doctors, I mean, you know, who, you know, but for, uh, you know, a few seconds in their life uh, making a bad decision. And that doesn't mean they're all guilty either. I mean, I've had, you know, a number of acquittals. Uh, so, I mean, there's something to go in and fight for. Uh, and, you know, it just, like I said, it's a big adrenaline rush when you're in there in the courtroom and you're defending somebody. Uh, and particularly when you know that that person is not guilty. Uh, wow. but I, but I don't, I, you know, I don't let up at all, even if the person's guilty, because the, I believe in that the state has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't do anything unethical. It's all by the book. Uh, you know, I've never been accused of doing anything that I shouldn't do. Um, uh, but it's, I think I have to bring everything that I have into the courtroom uh, and defend somebody, uh, and do it honorably and ethically. And I, I believe I, you know, I serve a service to, to the public Heck yeah. by requiring the state to come forward and prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm not looking for a pat on the back. Uh, that's not what I do it for. Uh, but I do it because I believe in the system. Well said. And Jack, hopefully you'll come back on with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for spending some time with us. Sure. Give me a call anytime. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, thank Jack. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I cannot wait to have him back on. So interesting. Yes, I want to hear more about or do a whole episode on this Larry Jean Bell story. Did he, do you remember that at the time? No, I don't really. I, vaguely. Vaguely. So I, I need to research this more. Great, great. We will have to for sure. Uh, we have an episode that will be re-releasing, which has more on Pee Wee Gaskins. So look for that upcoming we interviewed uh the man behind a, a, a podcast about peewee called all in the family who's also doing a, a documentary so look for that coming soon all right uh miss seaton where do they find us you can find us on facebook at impact of influence and any ideas that you have of cases you may want us to follow or learn about or interview someone about let us know And of course, we're still doing all the Murdoch stuff. Do not be worried about that. We'll be on top of it for you. Story that keeps on going. That's right. So we're always grateful. Please rate and subscribe and share. And we'll talk soon, friend.
Hello, friend. Last episode, you heard us talking to Pee Wee Gaskin's defense attorney. So here's a flashback episode where we talked about Pee Wee Gaskins a few months ago. Enjoy. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it. And reaching out, you can find us on Facebook, which is Impact of Influence. We will talk soon. Friend. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport... Then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.